0: Hello hobos and happy new year. I know my podcast usually comes out on a Sunday, so let's call this a bonus episode which I'm recording for selfish reasons. I've been ill over Christmas, maybe you can hear it in my croaky voice, and I'm finding it hard to get back to work after the upheaval of both Christmas and being sick. So I thought I might try and podcast my way back into work and into nuclear war by recording an episode about the work I was doing before Christmas and the cold got me. If you follow me on Twitter, you might have noticed a lot of tweets about animals and war. And this is because the chapter I'm currently writing for my book has a section on how we were supposed to deal with our household pets if nuclear war came. But as with so much of Britain's nuclear war planning it didn't just pop up out of the blue. The plans for our pets in the Cold War were based on what happened to our animals in Britain during the Second World War. So in order to help me get my feet back under the table I'm going to tell you what happened to Britain's pets and her zoo animals during the Second World War and if you want to find out how this then changed and transformed into how Britain would deal with her pets during a nuclear war, I direct you to one of my earliest podcast episodes called The Fate of Pets. But for now, let's go back in time to the Second World War to see what happened to Britain's pets and zoo animals during the Blitz. I've spoken before about my first memories of nuclear war, my first realisation of what it meant, And, of course, that came when I was just three and saw the film Threads on BBC Two and was marked for life thereafter. Similarly, I can remember my first real fear of the Second World War. And, of course, growing up in Britain, you can't not know about the Second World War. It soaks into absolutely everything. It's everywhere in our folk memory and in our uh, popular culture. But this memory I'm about to tell you about was when I first became afraid of the war. Up until then, it had just been something you saw on the news, black and white images on the TV or on film. But when I was nine at primary school, we were doing a project about life on the home front. And that's when I first realised that war isn't just something in a film or something that your grand might tell you a story about. It's something very frightening And so our project was about the home front and uh, it was largely fun, of course. The teacher had to make it fun to engage the nippers. So the teacher was telling us about evacuation and so we all had to get those chunky plastic scissors out and we had to cut little evacuation labels for ourselves and tie them on to our pinafors. We were also told that children, as they were being evacuated with those little labels neatly pinned to their jackets, would also have been carrying their gas masks. And it's the gas mask which first really frightened me when it came to the Second World War. Because the image of someone wearing a gas mask is of course frightening if it's a soldier or a man in a radiation suit. But when the gas mask is worn in a domestic setting and it's pulled on by, say, a grandmother in her apron or a child wearing his school blazer, then it is so unnatural, so jarring. And that frightened me that these gas masks, these uh, goggling alien faces could be stuck on the heads of nice grannies and school friends. It was, of course, recognised that the gas mask was a frightening thing for children during the war. Not just because... It was physically uncomfortable. You had to force it on over their heads. And those things aren't easy to put on. They have to be very, very snug and tight, of course. And you might feel a touch panicky and claustrophobic when it's pulled and stretched over your head. And so gas masks for children in the war were sometimes painted in bright colours or had cartoon Mickey Mouse ears on them, for example. But they're still frightening because... They're physically uncomfortable, and they take away the person's face. They turn you into a goggle-eyed, asthmatic alien. So if it was hard to get your child to don a gas mask, how were you supposed to get one on your dog or cat? Or budget? Thankfully, no one was expected to try and struggle and stretch a gas mask over their pet's head. Instead, the PDSA, People's Dispensary for Sick Animals, created a gas-proof kennel. This was really just a large box with a glass door. And you would encourage your dog or your cat to go inside. And once inside, you would close the glass door so that you could still see them and they could still see you. And you could then work bellows to puff clean air into the kennel. So you would do that during a gas attack. You and the family would put your gas masks on, tuck the dog in his glass-fronted gas-proof kennel and pump clean air into the kennel for the dog. Of course, you had to buy these privately. They weren't issued along with gas masks by the authorities. The advert, um, which I have here, appeared in the Times, and it really does tug at the heartstrings. It has a picture of a a dog, and it says, Could you watch him die? Could you ever forgive yourself? Could you ever forget his abject terror, should the dreaded gas attacks come? Every lover of dumb friends must face this horrible question. There is an answer. A perfect gas-proof kennel, the war dog has now been built. So the PDSA were building and selling war dogs, as I say, just big boxes really, which would protect the dog from a gas attack. But you could also use these war dogs to protect any other pets who would fit inside, so rabbits, etc., cats. You could even put a budgie cage inside it. Now, there were so many orders for these war dogs that the PDSA couldn't keep up with demand and so they had to issue advice for how to make a homemade one if you couldn't buy an official war dog. To make a homemade war dog, they said, put your pet in a large wooden box and cut little circles in the sides, uh, the size of a coin, for ventilation. You would then cover the box completely in a thick woolen blanket which you'd soaked in a chloride of lime solution admittedly it says here, again from the Times in 1939, the animal may be uncomfortable but it is receiving the best protection you can give it so with gas expected from Hitler, you could either get yourself a war dog or make a homemade war dog of course not everyone opted for that And instead, and this is quite distressing, but it's true, lots of people, in fact hundreds of thousands, in the first week of the war in Britain took their dogs and their cats to local vets, to local clinics, to local PDSA and RSPCA centres and asked, and in some cases demanded, that the animals be put down. My source for a lot of this is a book which I bought with my Christmas book tokens. Not very festive, but it is essential for my research. It's called The Great Cat and Dog Massacre, and it's by Hilda Keane. The book estimates, I believe, that 400,000 cats and dogs were killed in London alone at the start of the war. And the book has an interesting idea about why this happened. The book reminds us... As if British people had to be reminded of this, how proud we were of our behaviour during the war. The narrative of the British Home Front was and always has been that we were brave and resolute. You know, the old saying that London can take it, and Coventry and Clydebank, etc., everywhere else, which was blitzed during the war, we can take it. We're not going to be cowed by Hitler. We're going to stand up to him. And of course, that is true to an extent. Of course it is. But Hilda Keen's book says there was no outbreak of panic when the war started. Many people predicted it. Many people predicted that when the first sirens blared, people would start to scream, people would panic, there would be stampedes to the shelters. But it didn't happen. And statistics show that there was no Increase during the war of mental health disorders. There was no panic or mental breakdown provoked by the war. So perhaps we were all nice and resolute, but Hilda Keane points to the huge and irrational and unnecessary slaughter of our pets. And she asks, is this not perhaps an example of us not- Being tough and hardy and resolute and determined not to let Hitler creep in and infect and disturb and distress us. And she wonders if there wasn't some kind of displacement at work here. All the panic which was predicted. All the irrational behaviour. It didn't happen. But perhaps, psychologically, we shifted it onto our pets. Because no one asked people to kill their pets. There were queues outside vets and animal clinics all across London. Cats and dogs being held in their owners arms, waiting to queue up to have them killed. No one asked this of them. The authorities didn't ask it. The animal charities didn't ask it. No one expected it of these owners. They chose to do that. True, those who were being evacuated couldn't take their pets with them. But there were still options available rather than having the poor animal killed. You could hand it in to the RSPCA or PDSA, for example, who would try and rehome it. And there were organisations at work such as the Tail Waggers Club who tried to take any pets who couldn't be evacuated out of the city and match them with um, willing hosts who were out in the countryside or even abroad. People who were willing to host any pets who were either unwanted or were for some reason unable to stay in the city. No one was demanding a slaughter of Britain's pets. And yet, it happened. And it happened at such a rate that the PDSA at one point couldn't even keep up with the amount of dog and animal bodies that they had to burn in their furnaces. Because, of course, due to blackout rules, their furnaces had to be damped down at night. And because they couldn't be used overnight, this created a backlog. Because there were so many pet corpses waiting to be thrown into the furnace. At one point, the PDSA had a meadow in the grounds of one of their buildings in London and they had to turn it into a burial ground. And there are half a million animal bodies buried in that meadow. And what about the wild animals? What if a bomb had shattered the lion enclosure at London Zoo and sent the beasts out on the rampage. Well, the zoo considered that possibility, of course, but decided it was almost impossible because any bomb which did sufficient damage to the lion enclosure as to destroy it would probably kill the lions too. So there would be no carnivorous rampaging through Regent's Park. Nonetheless, the possibility did exist. And so, London Zoo had six specially trained riflemen who would take cover in the zoo's own shelters during an air raid and would be the first to emerge afterwards, ready to take aim, if necessary, at any lions, tigers or bears who had managed to get free. In fact, newspapers did report that a zebra managed to get free during a raid. But he was quickly apprehended, heading into Camden Town. Bloody hipster. So you'll be happy to hear there was no massacre of lions, tigers or bears in London Zoo during the war. Although they did kill their poisonous snakes. On the outbreak of war, it was considered that they could not risk those bad boys getting free. So the poisonous snakes were killed and the boa constrictors were put into special secure boxes. They also had to take care of the black widow spiders. I read that they actually beheaded the black widow. And i don't want to probe any further into that, into how or why they had to behead the spider let's just leave it at that so the moral of the story is love your dogs love them, love them, love them love cats if you must but mainly love dogs because they are the best and the goodest boys so thank you for entertaining this podcast, just a little short bonus episode to get me back on my feet and back into the swing of things. Not strictly nuclear themed this week, of course, but as I explained at the beginning, you can't understand nuclear planning, or indeed the whole Cold War, without dipping back into the Second World War. So here we are at the end of the short podcast. My voice sounds a bit clearer already. That's what comes with being forced to use it. Once David goes to work in the morning, there's no one in the flat but me and Bomba. Bomba's usually asleep. He's certainly not much of a conversationalist, so being forced to speak today and use my voice has um, coaxed it out from its crackly, qatar sticky cavern where it was stuck. Yuck. So thank you for listening, and thank you, of course, to my patrons. I got a nice surprise during the week because someone made a payment into my Atomic Hobo PayPal, and I completely forgot that I had that. That was set up in case anyone wanted to support the podcast or my nuclear travels and research through a one-off payment. And a payment popped up there with a nice note. So thank you to the person who sent that. That was a lovely surprise. If you want to contribute a one-off payment to the Atomic Hobo podcast, you can by going to paypal.me forward slash hobo. Or you can become a regular supporter by going to my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo. Let me give a quick thank you to some of my patrons this week. Let me say thank you to, uh, and I hope I pronounced your name properly, Declan, Declan Crawwell, uh, Dave Cardena, Antoine Stumpf, Sam Marco, Viv Huddy, The No Name Kid, Bill Capehart, Jeffrey Reed, Charlie Brown, Andrew Apostolos, Geert Kingma, Lane Raper, Amanda Nellist, Ian Whittaker, Rob Johnson, Oliver Wiles and Andre Russell.